this virus is not the one that's doing the discriminating. It's our systems that have long um, promoted structural inequities and racism that we're now seeing manifested during COVID-19 as we have in other health issues as well. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Evans, joined by my co-host, Matt Isles. Welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from AHEB. The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by IBM. IBM has been transforming industries for over 100 years. That's why IBM Watson Health was created with the bold endeavor to transform health. IBM Watson Health is committed to helping build smarter health ecosystems. That means working with you to help you achieve simpler processes, better care insights, faster breakthroughs, and improved experiences for people around the world. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Today, our guest is Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. Dr. Wen is also a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and a CNN medical analyst. And prior to her work at GW University, she served as Baltimore's health commissioner. And Dr. Wen, we are so grateful to you for joining us today. Appreciate it. We know you're very, very busy, and um, especially with everything going on in the world right now. So appreciate you joining us. Um, You have had quite a career, a practicing physician, a healthcare executive, a policymaker, an advisor, a public health expert, and last year Time Magazine named you one of the most uh, 100 most influential people. What is your primary focus today with everything that's happening in the world, as I said? Well, right now, my entire focus and shift is on COVID-19, as I'm sure all of you, all of us are living through, um, especially with my background as an emergency physician and in public health preparedness and response. This is the world that we have to pivot to. You know, there is a saying that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. Well, I think now, today, more than ever, we are all knowing it, right? We all can see exactly what happens when we neglect something that for so long has been invisible. That when we don't invest in public health infrastructure, when we don't invest in prevention, we're seeing exactly what happens. And um, we are, I know that I am, and I know so many of you and the people listening are devoting all of your energy to trying to reduce harm, reduce risk, and, and save lives as much as we can. Right. We know that you're a parent, I'm a parent, Laura's a parent, right? We know these are interesting times uh, for parents, uh, also for people who are caregivers uh, right now, just given all of the challenges that we're facing, both trying to uh, balance work and the demands of uh, our schedules. How are you managing that balance right now? It's pretty intense. And how do you think that COVID-19 has impacted the conventional work-life balance that we remember before COVID? What do you think is going to happen with that going forward? Yeah, it's a really good question, Matt. Um, well, for me, um, the COVID period also coincided with something else that happened in my life, which is I had a baby. So I have now a son who just turned three and a daughter who's four months old. Wow. Um, and, um, and it certainly was a very different experience to give birth during the pandemic. I actually gave birth at the same hospital that I did um, the first time around, but the experience was completely different. This was back in April. 
um, when we didn't know whether our hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, when we didn't have as clear direction as we do now about the protocols for, um, for protecting patients and providers. And it just was such a different experience. And I think a reminder that healthcare happens to all of us um, during a pandemic as well, and that we have to be taking care of not only COVID, but also all these other issues too. Um, you know, I, I would say that my life now is just very different for other reasons too. I used to travel a lot and now I obviously really do not travel. I still work clinically now, I did but before. I mean, there are lots of things that are similar and different, but I would say that what I've learned um, over the course of this about work-life balance is um, how much being a mom has influenced my being a leader in my management as well. Um, prior to becoming a mom, I'm kind of afraid to say that I actually didn't really realize about the demands. Um, I didn't fully recognize, I should say, the demands on working parents' time. And when I'm, as a manager, was scheduling meetings at 8 a.m. or 4.30 p.m., I, you know, I just didn't think about what that might do to the, um, to the people that I supervised and how challenging it must have been to then rearrange carpool and childcare and all these other things. And I think these are issues that we really must be even more attentive to during COVID, um, that um, working parents may have kids who are at home too. Um, we've all seen the kids making cameos, but also the idea that we as working parents have to be supervising our kids in different ways. And I think we as supervisors need to be even more flexible than we ever were. And we need to be giving each other a lot of grace during these times too. Yeah, you make such a good point. I think there's a um, an understanding that we all have with each other, our own our own circumstances, helping us understand each other, and um, you know, a, a humanness that has kind of risen to the surface through this whole experience. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you served as Baltimore's health commissioner. What are some of the lessons you learned about disaster preparedness from your time in that role that you may be applying to your own life right now, but that you know may be relevant to how we're responding to this? disaster of, of this pandemic? Yeah, so several things. One is the importance of clear, consistent communication, that there's no such thing as over-communicating at a time when there is so much misinformation and, and so much unknown. And I think that's something that we've seen, frankly, the U.S. not do nearly as good of a job of as we could have, and especially compared to other countries where there were daily press conferences. There was consistent messaging between the top elected officials and public health officials. Um, the press conferences need to really make clear too the humility that we must have in this moment, that there's a lot about this virus that we know, there's a lot about this virus that we don't know, that changing guidance does not mean failure. It actually means that we are being responsive um, in adapting our guidance to, to the changing science. And I think about this every day now because there is inconsistent messaging. Um, there is also conflicting messages that often come out. And I think that's a, really an important bedrock of emergency response that we need to improve on in, in moving forward. Um, something else that I, I, ver I very much saw every day as, um, as Baltimore's health commissioner is health disparities. That in my city, which is still my, my home now, we have neighborhoods that are 20 or that um, are just a few miles apart where there's a 20 year gap in life expectancy. And I used to show a map of the city. I actually stopped doing that in my presentations because there was almost no point because the same areas that have the lowest life expectancy also have the highest overdose rates, that also have the highest infant mortality, that also have the highest rates of cardiovascular disease, that also have the highest rates of incarceration. 
and containment. I mean, these social determinants of health all map onto one another. And it's those social determinants of health that we're seeing unmasked during the time of COVID-19. As has been said by other people, this virus is not the one that's doing the discriminating. It's our systems that have long um, promoted structural inequities and racism that we're now seeing manifested during COVID-19 as we have in other health issues as well. And I think learning, learning from all of this is that we can make a difference. We should not let perfect be the enemy of the good, meaning that while we strive for long-term change and we need to work on these issues of inequities and, and, um, and, and racism and so many other entrenched issues, but while we work on them, there are also very specific things that we can do right now. For example, we can ensure that we're targeting testing, contact tracing, other resources to areas that are the hardest hit. We can make sure that we have not only drive-in testing, but also walk-in testing for those who don't have cars. Um, we can make sure that we are setting up isolating and quarantining facilities and making sure that we have paid sick leave because otherwise, how is somebody um, supposed to be quarantining themselves and isolating themselves if they fear losing their jobs afterwards? And if they're living in crowded multi-generational housing, where doing so is extremely difficult. So I say all of this because so often the issues that we face in public health seem so entrenched and so difficult, but there are actually short-term things that we can do right now while we work towards these long-term solutions. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Lena, you, ra you raised so many important points about what we've learned really over the past couple of months and steps that we can be taking. And I just think back uh, from the health insurance uh, perspective, we met with our board of directors early in March and, and really made a commitment to be Part of the solution, making sure that we were stepping up on testing and treatment, um, making sure that patients could be discharged from the hospital. Uh, from your perspective, you know, what other things do you think that health insurance providers could do to protect individuals, families, and, and help stop the spread of COVID-19? That's a great question, and I'm um, definitely happy to give some of my, my, my ideas about this and to learn from, from you about all the work that, that um, you and, and Ahib have been doing. Um, one um, that comes to mind immediately is around telemedicine. I've been a proponent and a practitioner of telemedicine for four years. Um, it's actually some, something that we often talk about in, in for rural underserved areas, but I know having worked in an urban underserved areas that telemedicine is really critical for bringing specialty services, for getting over the barrier of transportation. We, for example, in Baltimore started doing telemedicine in our schools 
um, around mental health as well as around physical health to treat asthma and that help to reduce barriers to access and help to keep kids in school. And so I think more can be done to reduce barriers to telemedicine access in a way that's sustainable post pandemic as well. Um, I think that insurers can also do more when it comes to incentivizing prevention um, and especially thinking through how are we going to do things when our when we have vaccines um, that that are that that, that are coming out. Um, I always, you know, I think that testing was one of the original failures of this pen pandemic. We don't have nearly enough testing. And I know this is something that insurers are really struggling with, which which has to be paying for. Um, I would argue that it's not only those with symptoms or with exposure who should be tested. We also know that the that um, testing asymptomatic people is really critical. 40 to 50 percent of spread could be from asymptomatic individuals um, and asymptomatic testing and that type of widespread surveillance testing is how we're going to be successful in reigning in the virus as well. And finally, I would urge insurers to also think about innovative solutions for quarantining and isolation, whether that's something, because that is also key to containing the pandemic, is that something that can be reimbursed for in some way? Can there be some partnerships around this? Um, as this is also um, in, uh, 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 one of the key com components of successfully containing this virus. Uh, and Lena, you talked about the health disparities. Um, we know black communities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Can you also talk about the health challenges that women in particular are, are facing during this pandemic? Yeah, that's a um, really interesting point, Laura. Um, so I think women face challenges um, in addition to all the other challenges that people are facing and um, that are that may be amplified for women of color as well. One that we touched upon briefly, but I'll just mention in more detail is around um, is around being a caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, we know that women tend to be care caregivers anyway, not only of their children, but also of partners and parents. And these types of um, of, of demands um, are amplified in this time a, a, as well. I think women also tend to, and again, a generalization here, but tend to care for others and not necessarily for, 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 for themselves. And so I would hope that women also in this time are attentive to the, to the, the preventive screenings that they themselves should, should be having too. And I'll add one more to this, which is around mental health. Um, there was a CDC report that came out a few weeks ago that found that a shocking 40% of Americans are, are facing a mental health or substance use issue, um, which is dramatically increased over the same period in 2019. Hmm. Also that caregivers, so it also showed that one in 10 people, again, shocking number of one in 10 people considered suicide in the preceding 30 days. And that number increases to over 30% for those who are caregivers. And so we are going to see even more of these mental health challenges being exacerbated as time goes on. Substance use also, addiction is a disease of isolation. Already we're having an opioid epidemic before everything happened. And these are issues that are going to only get worse. And so I mentioned this because again, they are overlapping. We're talking about women, uh, but if women tend to be caregivers, if women tend to not care for, for themselves as much as baseline, these are issues that are going to be brought out even more. And I hope that people who are listening and all of us will be um, more attentive to ourselves, to our loved ones, and to also reach out to, to those around us too. Mm -hmm. You make such great points. I know we're, we're going through that in our own household. So <laughs> this is important firsthand experience here.
Um, and, you know, piggybacking on that too, let me ask you about this because Kamala Harris is expected to make some uh, maternal, maternal health a, a key part of her healthcare conversation. So would love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so I'm glad that maternal health is receiving the, um, the recognition that it really de deserves because our numbers here, frankly, are really shocking. Um, we know that a woman today um, who's pregnant is more likely to die in pregnancy than her mother was 30 years ago. We know also that Black women face disproportionate share of, of maternity. They're um, nearly three times more, more likely to die um, during pregnancy. And that's something that, again, is just um, absolutely unacceptable. Um, I think something that we need to hear more about, people tend to think about maternal mortality as that uh, the labor and delivery process in and of itself, which is really important. And having just gone through this again, I certainly hope that we pay more attention to, um, to issues around labor and delivery too. But we also know that two thirds of maternal mortality is not what just occurs during labor and delivery, it's what occurs around that period, including in the postpartum period too, which is often neglected as, our, as part of our thinking. I mean, I remember having a patient who came in postpartum who was having difficulty breathing and she had a history of asthma and everybody thought that she was having an asthma attack. But when we took a chest x-ray, we found that she actually had a severely enlarged heart. And it was because she had untreated high blood pressure going into her pregnancy that then the stress of the pregnancy itself brought out um, the, her congestive heart failure. And she was in florid heart failure at the time that we were seeing her. And that's the reason why she was having trouble breathing. That's the reason why she was wheezing. I mentioned all of this because we cannot think about maternal health as separate from the rest of women's health. In the same way, we cannot think about reproductive health care as somehow separate from the rest of health care. And so we really need to do a better job of integrating, re uh, of integrating reproductive health care right. so that primary care offices are seeing reproductive health care as part of their practice, such that reproductive health practices don't just see their issues as being siloed, but also see that they need to be also talking about blood pressure. They also need to be talking about depression and mental mm -hmm. health. Um, and I think that we need to do a lot more when it comes to insurance as well. Um, it just does not make sense that insurance for pregnant patients in many places expires 30 days after they, they deliver. We need to be doing a much better job of taking care of women, not only during the time of pregnancy, but recognizing that addressing maternal mortality also involves taking care of women during the continuum of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maternal health, reproductive health, primary care, right, you've touched on a couple of very important elements of healthcare delivery. Looking ahead to the 2020 elections, how do you think the outcome could affect healthcare delivery in this country? Um, I think that the 2020 elections will certainly change um, everything that we are facing a fork in the road, depending on which way that we go. Um, uh, uh, with COVID-19, um, and with the push towards a single payer system, I think that if um, if the Democrats win, um, there will be a lot more um, when it comes to increasing healthcare coverage and insurance, and potentially more towards some type of government intervention and government payment in some way, whether it's public option or something else that's re that's related also and driven by um, the um, by the, the COVID experience. 
I think if the Republicans have the, 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 the majority in the presidency, they will, of course, will see more of what has already been occurring, which is more efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And so I do think that 2020 is going to be instrumental um, in determining which path we all go um, with regard to health insurance and therefore also with the outcomes of, of health care as well. And, and Dr. Wen, outside of the election, and we ask this of, of, every, of every guest, what do you see as the next big thing in health? Um, and what do you see healthcare looking like after COVID? Well, here's my hope for the next big thing. I, um, I'm not sure if it will be, but here, but here is what I, I hope it is regardless. I hope that we will finally get to a conversation about health that's beyond healthcare. We know that 97% of cost is spent on health care, but I think all of us listening and all of us who are part of this conversation know that what determines how long you live, how well you live, how happy you are, um, what your life is like is not just about what happens within the four walls of a hospital or a clinic, but it's about all these other factors that go into good health as well. The water that we drink, the air that we breathe, the educational opportunities that we have access to. We know that poverty and inequality, they, these are things that are inextricably linked to health. And I hope that we can pay much more attention to health and well-being moving forward. Wonderful. Dr. Lena Wynn, an emergency physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University Milken School of Public Health. Thank you so much for being with us Thank and your you insight. Did. You've been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, brought to you by IBM. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions.